I'm Sarah Rodman, and I'll be your host for the Los Angeles Times new podcast about all things entertainment. To kick things off for the first leg of the series, we're going to talk about award season, a sacred time in Hollywood. On today's show, we'll cover Oscar predictions, roundtable discussions with A-list talent, and how the recent Time's Up movement is influencing the award season. And now we have a conversation between two LA Times staffers, Lorraine Ali and Jan Yamato, as they discuss pressing issues coming to the forefront of this award season. Hi, I'm Lorraine Ali, television critic for the LA Times. And I'm Jen Yamato, film reporter for the Los Angeles Times. And we are here to talk about essentially what everybody's been talking about rolling into awards season, how the culture in Hollywood and television has been changed and has changed for women, how that's been reflected in the Me Too movement, and more recently, the Time's Up movement. So let's get into this and talk about this thing that has changed awards as we know them. Look, it's really exciting because we're taking awards season and and it's really transformed into a platform for talking about essential, important social causes, social concerns. And for everybody essentially in Hollywood to be on board with that now, I think is a really, really important thing. This is an important time. Uh, you and I are talking now in uh, the week bef- between a very, very political and outspoken Golden Globe ceremony and the upcoming Academy Awards nominations. And so this is a time when I think everybody with even a a slim chance at an Oscar nomination is sort of, you know, I don't want to be cynical about it, but everybody is 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 playing what essentially has become part of the this award season, which is being politically involved and and having a voice in this greater conversation that is taking place. Yeah, and I think I agree. I mean, I think last year we saw a lot of people talking about diversity in Hollywood, Oscars so white, that kind of thing. I think this year in the wake of Harvey Weinstein, um, you know, in the wake of Trump and what he said about women, um, there's much more of a focus on women, but the roles that they're landing, the uh, productions they're creating, um, and just how they've been treated in general in the business. And, you know, these are all things like we know has existed. But the fact that they're now using, and I say they're as, you know, the people that attended, say, the Golden Globes and the black dresses, raising awareness on a red carpet about these issues. And that's traditionally been an area where it's been very vapid. It's like, oh, who are you wearing? Oh, you look so beautiful. Did you lose weight? Show us your nails. Yes, exactly. And now it's like, okay, let's talk about, you know, how you've possibly been sexually harassed in Hollywood. It's a very, very different environment. Yeah, or at the Golden Globes, you saw uh, several prominent Hollywood actresses uh, bring as their dates to the red carpet female activists, uh, race activists. A lot of really interesting stuff was happening this year just on the red carpet, and that's something that I feel like we've all been waiting for and never dreamed could happen. So there's something really, I think, really special about this time in Hollywood and the fact that everybody now is taking part in this conversation. Yeah. And I, I think also, you know, when we're talking about the red carpet and it's right, like at the Golden Globes, I love that we saw Billie Jean King and Tanya Harding 
you know, coming into. And tell me why so. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's very inclusive. Yes, uh, yes. But, uh, you know, what's great about it, too, is that, you know, we're rolling forward to the Oscars here. But, you know, just looking at how uncomfortable it was for many people to be discussing this publicly at the Golden Globes was actually a good thing to see. Because I think it shows that people are grappling with this, you know, particularly like Ryan Seacrest was on the red carpet. Sarah Jessica Parker walks up and you know he wants to ask, hey, your gown, who are you wearing? But he has to say, so sexual harassment in Hollywood or something to that effect. What do you think? And then on stage, um, I think it was a Ron Howard moment where they were announcing a, a, a director category and uh, there was no women in oh. it. The Natalie Portman. Yes, right. And she pointed that out and he looked so utterly uncomfortable. And I thought, this is good. This is a good thing. This is not calling men out. This is not, you know, ooh, you guys don't understand. It is, we're grappling with this. We're trying to figure out where to go. It was really interesting to see her use that opportunity to make such a a big statement. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when you kind of pull back and look at the awards, the year in awards in general. And, you know, the Emmys are a weird thing because they happen in the fall, right, September. So when they happened in 2017, the Weinstein news hadn't broken yet. But still, there was plenty of attention towards what women had been putting forth in terms of the art they were creating and also what they were producing, starring in, and the different types of roles they had. You know, you were looking at The Handmaid's Tale, Big Little Lies. And though Game of Thrones wasn't included in the Emmys because it wasn't, it didn't qualify at that point, that whole narrative rolling up last year was all about the women seizing power. So I'm really interested to see what happens as we roll around to it this year. But you did see at the Golden Globes, and we were talking about this earlier, television and the roles that are afforded for women in television and just some of the more also being on the creative end of it, it seems like television is in a better place than film for oh, women. A thousand percent is. I mean, as as great as 2017 was for with films like Wonder Woman, presenting not only a strong female icon on screen, but strong women behind the camera. Wonder Woman was the highest grossing superhero origin story of all time. Wow. Which is great because you know what? All those other DC movies, the Superman movies are not good. <laughs> so it's like finally fanboys had to like own up to the cold truth. And you had three of the highest grossing movies at the box office being fronted by women. The new Star Wars movie, Wonder Woman, and Beauty and the Beast. However, it was not a great year for female filmmakers. There were still only, I think, a, a USC study found that only eight of the top 100 movies in 2017 had been directed by women. Wow. The numbers are still so, so low in terms of representation behind the camera, not only for, for women, but for filmmakers of color. And those are issues that I hope that these larger conversations will start to to turn into action. I, I hope that we are at a place now when something like Time's Up can stimulate a, an intersectional moment for everybody. See, I love that word, intersectional. It's and a great I, word. It's a great <laughs> word because if only, you know, we Hollywood could do that, the entertainment industry could do that. Because I do see this problem of short attention span. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to I don't want to downplay this to it being like the cause of the moment that that's not it. I think it's, you know, when you're talking about 
something that's been a problem for decades and decades, and I'm talking about the harassment of women, I'm talking about sidelining, you can't really have a very nuanced conversation when it's coming out in these giant waves, right? And I think the same with talking about how Hollywood was so white and is so white. It's really hard when it's breaking after decades and decades to kind of have this, um, hang on, let's let's weave it all together because it has to come flooding out in order for us to parse all this. And what I saw, for instance, at the Golden Globes this year was I felt like a lot of what we had talked about or what had been talked about about diversity, the films that were being honored, the shows that were being honored, a lot of it kind of turned away from that again because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, now we're looking at women. It's a different thing. But it's not. It's all yeah. connected. I mean, the Oscars this year will also be so white, which is something that we should not forget or ignore. As two people that come from diverse backgrounds, you know, it doesn't feel great when you look at a movement like, you know, Oscars so white and people look at it like, OK, that was a trend. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, this is like how we exist. This is our livelihood. This is how we've been treated. You know, so to be recognized as human beings in the room with equal merit that shouldn't be a trend. That should just be the status quo. And it sounds really basic and stupid, but we're kind of looking at this this year and it's like, okay, it's the year of the women. Well, damn, why do we just get one year? Yeah. And why as minorities do we just get one year? But you I know? think I think the, the good thing is that we are having that discussion so much more openly and honestly and universally uh, than we have been in past years. So the question can be asked, why can't it be the year of all women? Why can't next year also be a year for all women? I do feel like that we are on the the brink of a, a much more inclusive conversation, cultural conversation. And it, it feels like it took this long for it to happen. Hmm. How do you think that's going to play out on stage during the awards? Well, I hope that at the Oscars ceremony, which is way more buttoned up than the Golden Globes. So maybe the Globes afforded a little bit more leeway in terms of what people could say or how they felt they could take agency and ownership over their moment. I hope that that conversation continues. I think it's interesting that we're seeing the Time's Up movement reflected in how certain Oscar campaigns are being conducted. Uh, James Franco won the Golden Globe for his role in Disaster Artist Mm -hmm. the same night that Twitter allegations came out against him, accusing him of sexual misconduct. And then he spent what would have otherwise been a victory tour on the late night shows addressing it. And he also is, you know, like they're they're hopeful that Disaster Artist gets Oscar nominations as well. So I can't see him just ignoring, or them, the distributor, just ignoring that that is out there in the conversation now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Aziz Ansari, you know, he's looked at as this model of, you know, pushing forward the narratives we're seeing on television in a really progressive and interesting way. Now he's going to have to answer to these allegations. You know, I have concerns that with these allegations coming forward against these guys, there are different gradations of these and we're blanketing everyone with the same thing. And and I think the idea of we want all these things to happen so fast. We want accountability immediately. Yes, yeah. Exactly, right, which is understandable and it's also problematic, but it's also part of this process. 
the stuff has been going on for so long and it's going to take a long time to change. And I think we're just seeing the beginnings of these, I wouldn't even call them growing pains. I would say like this structure just cracking and breaking down and what's coming up from underneath it. It's going to take a while. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. You can find me, Jen Yamato, on Twitter, at Jen Yamato, where I would love to hear your thoughts on whether or not Get Out is the movie of the year. Because aren't we all in some version of the sunken place or another? I think we are. And you can follow me at, at Lorraine Ollie on Twitter. Um, and I'm voting for I, Tonya because, I don't know, something about her just uh, embodies the spirit of anger, but uh, looking for perfection, I don't know. Many of us women have it. Uh, but thank you for tuning in and rolling forward to the Oscars. You can see more of our coverage on latimes.com. In the hilarious, heartfelt, and culturally significant film, The Big Sick, Kumail, a Pakistani stand-up comic, begins dating an American graduate student named Emily. As their relationship blossoms, he soon becomes worried about what his traditional Muslim parents will think of her. When Emily is struck down with a mysterious illness, doctors place her in a medically induced coma, forcing Kumail to bond with Emily's deeply concerned parents, played by Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. Here's a joke. No, tear it down. Tears about as funny as a fart at a funeral. No. <laughs> this is funny. This is a funny one. Okay. All right. A giraffe walks into a bar and he says to the bartender, highballs on me. You get it, right? Oh, that was the end of the joke? Yeah, of course. That was the whole joke. <laughs> That's the joke. That's the beauty of it. Get the big sick on iTunes Movies. Welcome back. In our next segment, I sat down with Mark Olson, the co-host of The Envelope, the LA Times signature award season panel discussion. We chatted about some of this season's roundtable highlights. Okay, Mark, are you ready to talk about award season? Yes, always. Are you, are you excited about award season? Yes. I, th I feel like this year's award season has become unexpectedly exciting, that I, there's a, a strange... Uh, floating in air, falling off a cliff feeling for a variety of reasons that has made it more unpredictable than your typical award season. And that has just led to it feeling freer and more exciting and less predictable. So because we are sort of entertainment adjacent here in what we do, you end up having the opportunity every year to talk to a lot of the people that we believe are going to get nominated, to actors and actresses and directors. And since the DGA nominations just came out, I believe that you had the distinction of talking to three of the five people that were nominated. That's right. Actually, a really exciting group of filmmakers that we had Catherine Bigelow for Detroit. And Catherine is the only woman to have actually ever won the Oscar for Best Director. We also had Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, Darren Aronofsky for Mother, Sean Baker for The Florida Project, and Angelina Jolie for our first They Killed My Father, with those being seven exciting people having made seven really distinctive movies. And again, I think it speaks maybe to the sort of the a new style of filmmaker, a new style of sort of Academy movie, that these were seven people who all seemed like really curious and engaged with each other. One of the things that kept coming up during the panel, it seemed, they were talking about fables and parables, and it seemed like even though the films were very different, that they all 
enjoyed that they had that concept in common. I think so. I think, I mean, Darren Aronofsky was talking about his movie Mother, that he really engaged with it on that level, that he liked talking about it as this kind of parable that is both takes a lot of biblical imagery and references, but also in a, a maybe a simpler, more direct way is sort of about the environment and, you know, Mother Earth and things like that. And so, and it, it seemed like everyone kind of related to that. And then Guillermo del Toro just, I think, speaks so clearly about uh, the shape of water and the things that for him it's about and the way that the the movie and it's, you know, somewhat fantastical story that kind of melds, you know, a romance and science fiction and a monster movie and a Cold War espionage film that at its heart, it's still very much this just very emotional story. I feel like so many of these stories that they could be as old as time, but they are set in different places. And I know that Greta's film is set in Sacramento right up the road, mm -hmm. but she was talking about it also having its roots in parable. That's right. It's funny. I think she has talked about this a few times now that she th thought a lot about the lives of saints and, and the ways in which saints and some of them might just kind of be bratty teenagers in a way. And that that's in its own way is just sort of an eternal and a constant thing. So that in exploring, you know, both a, a, a teenage girl's own coming of age, but also the sort of the dynamic of that specific girl to her mother that those were things that are sort of eternals and like real constants that that people have things that people have gone through all through the ages even as she is dealing with very much the specifics of it in sort of the early 2000s Sacramento and i think that she believes and and when i read it i believed it too that people might be surprised to sort of make that connection with that particular film that even though it is also set in the past feels very contemporary so let's hear her explaining that in her own words I was going to say that when you guys were talking about fables and, and making it more allegorical in that way, even though I don't know that necessarily anyone would connect this to mine, but I read a lot of Lives of the Saints when I was working on mine, even though it was about a teenage girl. I wanted it to feel like it was connected to, but each of the lives of the saints, like St. Francis on the one hand was like this, you know, obviously amazing man who renounced everything and went to live in nature and experienced love for the world. But he was also just an annoying 17-year-old who took off all of his clothes in the town square and was like, I don't need your money, Dad. And like, I was just thinking about him as a teenager and what that would have been. And I was like, well, but what if it was a teenage girl in this specific place of Sacramento, California? And I'm not saying she's a saint, but I, I looked at those trajectories of kind of how complicated they were and how they lived these real lives. And, and I said it in Sacramento because I know it and I felt that the more specific I made it, the more universal it would and be. And St. Francis was from his Italian Sacramento, Assisi. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, uh, yeah, St. Francis of Assisi of Sacramento. <laughs> Am I wrong in believing that Get Out is the film that made the most money that is in contention for the folks that you talked to was the most commercially successful? I think of the uh, on the panel, uh, yes, I want to say yes. So for no other reason than it it, it had, a, you know, a, a wide commercial release earlier in the year. And some of these movies, as we're recording this, are still sort of in the process of having platform releases and coming out to the world. But yeah, and I think the, you know, especially considering the the 
Get Out was made for such a, a low figure in the first place, I think it was under five million or so, that you know the sort of return on investment of that movie has just been amazing. So certainly it's been one of the most profitable movies of the entire year. And it's interesting in that sense because it may be of those in contention the most contemporaneous and the one that is actually having something to say about the moment that we find ourselves in now. And it was something that you did ask him about, about leaning into politics. I mean, it, even if it is satirical and subtle, it is there. It has things to say about race relations in this country. And it was interesting to hear, and I think in the course of the conversation, it was Greta sort of pointed this out, that all, really all the movies in one way or another were sort of speaking to the contemporary moment, whether it was The Shape of Water, which is set in early 60s. Baltimore, Detroit, which is about the Detroit riots in the late 60s, or, you know, even Mother or the Florida Project, Angelina Jolie's film, First They Killed My Father, that's a period film. And so that, but that all of them are speaking to these tensions and sort of like some of the dynamics and dilemmas that I think we're all going through now. But I think Get Out is the one that speaks maybe most clearly to those things. It's most openly about sort of race, racial tension, and racism. And and so the the ways in which sort of get out in which Jordan explores those things in the film, I think it's 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 you wouldn't even speak of it in terms of like parable or anything like that. I mean it's pretty direct what it's what it's being about, but he goes about it in a way with sort of this horror comedy mix that I think is something that people have really, really responded to. It's just freed people up. I, it's something else that we talked about a bit in the conversation was that it made for such a great theatrical experience. It was so fun mm. to see Get Out actually like in a movie theater with a group of people. And the feeling that you had to talk about it instantaneously the moment that you got out. And Jordan was one of the few people that actually um, mentioned the president by name. And so let's hear what he had to say about that. The movie happened because of there was a void in the conversation. I think the, the same void of the, of, of the racial conversation uh, in this case is what led to um, Donald Trump being elected because there wasn't there was not uh, there wasn't checks and balances for racist behavior, racist comments. We were, this is this this era of the post the post racial lie era, which was when Obama was elected. A lot of people didn't want to talk about race anymore, and you know we we there were racist things you know hurled at Obama himself, and he sort of um, didn't address them directly. And there was this feeling like it's. It's not comfortable. We don't want it. If, if you're even talking about race, you're perpetuating it. Um, that was the, the same zone, I, I think, that this, the, these horrible emboldening of the racist sentiments that have always been there um, festered and, and, and grew into that. So, um, you know, I, I think I don't think it's a coincidence that the timing linked up. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the um, you know w one of the interesting things about it when I talk about you know Trumpism uh, uh, certainly is that I think in a very dark way that was based on things that felt true to people. There was this this thing of doesn't matter what's true, what feels true. And I think what Get Out was 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 hopefully the um, me me trying to do that in in a positive way.
So another storyline parallel to the awards conversation that is happening now is the reckoning that is happening in Hollywood and the Me Too movement and the recent Time's Up movement. Is that a thing that you think is having an impact on the way people are voting? Was that too late? Did that come too late for people to factor that in to the films that they're picking? I think it's something that definitely has changed the tone of the season. I mean, obviously the way that it's impacted red carpets and things like that. It was uh, we. It was something we did talk about on some of the panels, and everyone would kind of look at each other like, "Oh, we're we're talking about this now." And someone would take a deep breath and sort of dive in and start talking about it. And you did feel they were a little nervous to talk about, but that they also were almost a little relieved to talk about it. It was funny on our uh, lead actress panel, uh, it was Jessica Chastain who actually said she enjoys the process of award season for the reason that it's the only time she gets to be in rooms with like large groups of other actors and actresses that they don't really come together that often in sort of their regular working lives. And so at a moment when people in the industry are uncertain and do feel a certain amount of anxiety and questioning that it actually is a strangely a, a, a good thing for there to be the award season, like bringing them together so they can have conversations either in private or in public about the things that they're feeling and the things that are going on. And, and Saoirse Ronan had a nice follow-up to Jessica Chastain's comments, too. So let's take a quick listen to a moment from the Best Actress panel. I'm happy at this moment because I don't get to be on film sets with so many actresses that I admire. So whenever we're all together for something like this, it's it's really makes me feel good. Um, and hopefully we can take advantage of finally being allowed in the same room at the same time to create our own projects and finally get to work alongside each other. I think another thing as well is that like the bravery that it's taken for men and women to come forward over the last few weeks as awful as it is for them to have gone through what they went through, the fact that they've sacrificed so much so that we can walk onto a film set from now on and feel safe and feel protected and feel respected because that just can't go down anymore. That will never happen again because these people have finally come out and said something and the bravery it's taken for them to do that is really incredible and I think it's, it's really inspiring certainly for like a young woman who's gone through all of this stuff, like everything that we're doing now, it's it's surreal and it's wonderful and all that, but something like that I think is such a good sort of reality check for all of us too, so. Hugh Jackman on the lead actor panel, he said, it does feel not so much like a celebratory moment. It feels strange maybe for the usual sort of champagne popping and backslapping rituals of award season, but that the idea of everybody coming together was something that there was some sort of a solace in. But it's interesting that you say that one person would take a deep breath and then say something. It's like the panels were also a microcosm of Me Too itself, that once the first person stepped forward, did you feel sort of a, oh, okay, we I think can so. talk about I this. think so, exactly. That I mean, on pretty much every one of the panels, everyone kind of looked around and once someone said frankly, anything, then everyone else kind of felt like, oh, maybe I can talk about it too. And I think also the fact that not everyone has a perfectly thought out stump speech on this particular topic, that people are maybe getting their messaging together, kind of figuring out how they want to address it, how the, what they do or don't want to say from a personal aspect that I think that the because of the fact that this, you know, for some people is more conceptual, for some people is deeply, deeply personal, that it, it kind of changes the way and, you know, not everyone is talking about it in the same way. 
Right. They're figuring out how they feel. And just like people who, you know, use the hashtag themselves, some people didn't come forward because they don't feel comfortable talking about it. Not because they don't care, but because for them it is deeply personal and they're not ready to go there yet. So and I like that, you know, people talk a lot about on award shows when everyone thanks the other person in their category and they feel like that's insincere. But to the point you just made, they do end up becoming the sort of troop almost of going from place to place and doing promotions and going to award shows. And that maybe a little solidarity is formed and maybe this season that's probably better than ever. May it go forward. We can only hope. Well, thanks, Mark. Thank you, Sarah. And for anyone interested, they can follow along on Twitter at IndieFocus. And I also write a weekly newsletter on the world of movies in Los Angeles and beyond at latimes.com slash IndieFocus. If you'd like to hear more, check out latimes.com slash Envelope. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is a darkly comedic drama starring Frances McDormand as Mildred Hayes, a mother frustrated by the lack of progress in her daughter's murder investigation. She commissions three signs with a controversial message directed at Chief of Police William Willoughby, played by Woody Harrelson. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but right now there ain't too much more we can do. I'm doing everything I can to track him down. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. But I'm glad you got your priorities straight. I'll say that for you. Pre-order three billboards on iTunes Movies. And we're back. While some of the smaller award shows have already taken place, it's all leading up to Hollywood's biggest night, the Academy Awards. This year's nominees will officially be announced next week, and while there are a number of strong frontrunners, the race is still wide open. To talk more on that subject, let's check in with Justin Chang and Glenn Whipp. Hi, I'm Glenn Whipp. I cover award season for the Los Angeles Times. And I'm Justin Chang. I'm a film critic for the Times, and we are here to talk about award season, specifically the Oscar nominations, which will be announced January 23rd, ending months of suspense. We're going to talk about uh, what we want to see nominated and what we expect to see nominated. And now let's look at lead actor. It's the one race where some people are ready to to coronate a winner. Let's see if that happens. I, I would say I see in this category, you know, Gary Oldman, Timothy Chalamet, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis for Phantom Thread, you know, the valedictory nomination for what is perhaps well, his final. Well earned. Very well earned, too. Uh, not just valedictory, but yes. it is that, too. I mean, it's it's a terrific performance. Um, I think Daniel Kaluuya is going to make it in for Get Out. I'm hoping. It might be wishful thinking, but I think he will. And I'm going to say I think James Franco is going to get in despite uh, – and I want to ask you about this, Glenn, since you've been writing about this um, – what you think about uh, the timing of this, you know, as we know, um, you know, five women have come forward with allegations of sexual harassment against James Franco, and this is happening right during the nomination period. It seems so crass, of course, to talk about, you know, what this means in terms from an award season standpoint, but that is, that is our podcast right now. That's right. what we're talking about. Yeah. And certainly the, in the, the industry. prospect that we could see in yeah. Academy Awards where there's a nominee who yeah. has a cloud over his head because an investigation that the Times, Daniel Miller and Amy Kaufman, yes. um, broke toward the end of Oscar balloting. And I was talking to some people about this. From what consultants tell me, the heaviest voting days are the first day uh-huh. and then the last, the last day. day. People people wait until the last minute to vote. So 
Franco probably banked a great many votes for his performance in The Disaster Artist. You know, it's it's a movie about movies and it's a movie about passion, <laughs> however ridiculous that passion is. Yeah. So I'm sure that Franco got a lot of votes. He just won the Golden Globe, as, yeah, as I absolutely. believe you mentioned. So actor race takes on a bit of intrigue. Yes, indeed. Um, but it's the lead actress race that's the most interesting race. And it was that was the case last year, too, because so many of these um, best picture yeah. um, contenders are stories. God. Isn't this great? It's Our wonderful. And, women. The, and that to me, I mean, there are so many levels of progress I feel that the industry still needs to make. And the one that I think we can safely say they've done a good job at is getting more of these stories out there. And you look at these five, and I think a lot of people have the same five that I'm thinking, and maybe you're thinking too, but Probably. I actually think we do. And every one of these, except for maybe I, Tanya, and even that's on the bubble, is a potential and likely best picture contender. And that is – and why don't we just run through them now? I think Sally Hawkins for The Shape of Water, uh, Frances McDormand for Three Billboards. She won the Golden Globe. Margot Robbie for I, Tanya, Saoirse Ronan for Lady Bird, who also won the Golden Globe for Actress in a Comedy. And I think Meryl Streep will get in for the post, even though it, weirdly she's having to fight – a bit more for that nomination, despite this being, I think, the best performance she's given in years. It would be but, her 21st. Oh, yes. Oh, my God, yes. But it's, you know, that's just my outcome. But you look at these. These are movies that are likely Best Picture nominees with women front and center leading those stories. That didn't happen, you know, as much in the past. You know, usually Best Picture is a male-centric race. So right. that's wonderful to see. It is wonderful to see. It's very exciting. What we're seeing now, you know, last year, Moonlight won Best Picture. Who could have imagined a movie like Moonlight winning Best Picture? But we're into kind of a different looking academy right now. The last two years, we've seen these enormous classes of new members, where now you have a lot more women, a lot more international filmmakers and members, and a lot more minority members. And their ideas of great performances and great movies are much different than the traditional ideas of th that the Academy has had. Let's talk about the Best Picture race and what's going to be nominated there. We have seven movies, I think, that are pretty sure bets to be nominated for Best Picture. Lady Bird, Get Out, Shape of Water, Three Billboards, The Post, Call Me By Your Name, and Dunkirk. So that's seven. Mm -hmm. Now, since the Academy went to this between five and ten variable best picture, four years we've seen nine movies nominated, yep. two years we've seen eight. So that's seven. That leaves room for a couple of more movies. Mudbound could be one of them, although it's Netflix and we wonder how many people have seen it. In the past, yep. that's been a problem. Big Sick is another uh, possibility of beloved Sundance film from last year, a comedy that was a big indie hit, uh, takes a genre and, and does some surprising things with it. You mentioned Phantom Thread. People love Paul Thomas Anderson. We both mentioned The Florida Project and how we'd love to see that get in there. I wonder which one or two of those movies might be the eighth and ninth spot. There's also buzz perhaps for Darkest Hour um, as, as the possible. Maybe, maybe That seems like maybe a less likely choice for me, but I think it was originally... It's more of know, a traditional Academy movie. Yes. And then I, and to look to the Producers Guild nominations, mm -hmm. which are usually kind of a, a harbinger of this category, and they went to... Did they, 
be nominated 12 films this year, I believe. It was 11. 11, sorry. There was yes. a tie. There was a tie. I got it. So 11, which is more, you know, one more than the usual 10, and 10 is already more than the Academy will likely nominate. So there were definitely a few little freebies in there. Yeah. But, um, you know, Molly's Game was in there. Wonder Woman was in there. Mm-hmm. And so that tells you something. Those are kind of in the mix as well. It's interesting. Sometimes it, it, it raises the question when there are so many good to great movies, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Academy will will spread the wealth or, or give right. as many as they could. They might decide to stop at a certain number. I mean, and of course, this is all a mathematical it's process. All, it's all a math. It's all it's, math. Because they only list on their ballots mm-hmm. their top five films, and they rank them in order, and then that math kicks in. But yeah, that's interesting, because I think those seven are in, and I don't feel strongly about any of the other movies. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, although Big Sick, probably maybe I the closest. Think, I, and I, I think it'd be lovely to see the Big Sick in there. I think it's a really good For film. For a lot of reasons. For a yeah. lot of reasons. There's certainly the diversity angle there, with uh, Kumail Nanjiani being such a force in that film. But beyond that, it's also, I think it's a matter of diversity, too, to see a comedy, uh, yes. a romantic comedy, and one of the better romantic comedies in recent years taken seriously as a best picture candidate. Mm-hmm. If yeah, I had a romantic ch- comedy with just deep emotional stakes. Absolutely. And funny. Very, very funny. <laughs> if I had to choose one, I, I'd actually throw my support. I don't know if it's a wishful thing or a, an actual matter of expectation, but I hope Mudbound gets in there. Mm-hmm. Um, D. Rees has kind of a less, less of a shot at getting into the director race simply because there are only five for sure. And if we go to that director race now, you know, the director guild nominees were just announced and they were Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Martin McDonough for Three Billboards, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, and Jordan Peele for Get Out. Uh, And that's an exciting crop as well. You know, of course, I think all the headlines have been about Gerwig and Peele as kind of the new kids on the block, the diversity that they exemplify and the the symbolic power of of, of their nominations. So. the Directors Guild and the Academy typically do not match up perfectly. There's usually maybe one or two off even, so we shouldn't necessarily assume that these are the five. It's a pretty good-looking five. you know. I might it's a great-looking five, yeah. And, yeah. and it's the five I think the Academy will recognize. If they don't, it's going to be at their peril now. <laughs> um, it's been eight years since the five have matched up. There, there could be a surprise, but again, I think you leave Gerwig and and Peel because their movies are so good and so fresh and so exciting and do such interesting things with their right. genres, you leave them off at your peril. Um, it would and, and put Spielberg in there, or I know I, I don't know Spielberg or um, I'm trying to think who else it could be Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott, perhaps <laughs> uh, you know, and you know, and and why not? But uh, I would be heartbroken if Christopher Nolan missed out because. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he has never, never been nominated for Best Director. He's been nominated for Screenplay. And he has been nominated for by the Director's Guild before and then missed out for mm-hmm. on an Academy Award nomination. So it would get to the point where what does Christopher Nolan have to do? He made a World War II movie, for heaven's sake. You know? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if, if he's he, not you know, nominated for this, I, what, I don't know what I, he, he can be nominated for. Well, I think we have a lot of questions still, but the, some of those questions anyways will be answered on January 23rd when the Academy Award nominations are announced. Uh, Until then and after then, we will keep a close eye on this very exciting race. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Justin C. Chang. And I'm on Twitter as well, at Glenn Whip. Thanks for listening to the first episode of The Real. Our film team is headed off to Sundance. 
So check in next time to get their reactions to Oscar nominations. And be sure to download this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite listening. Until next time, I'm Sarah Rodman. To get these and many other award-nominated films, go to itunes.com slash Oscars.